0: Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our Pulpit Ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives.
1: Turn your attention to 1 Peter Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at a few verses today as we continue our series entitled, "Christ Church, the dearest place on earth. And let me say this again as your pastor, I, I am excited about this series because it is directed to those that I love most in this world, Christ Church. I'm thankful for each and every one of you. I am thankful that the Lord has given me the honor and the privilege and has entrusted me to be your pastor. We've looked at some helpful things so far in this series. If you'll remember back with me for just a moment, we'll do a little review for those of us who might not have been here for the entirety of this thus far. We looked first at the basic attributes of Christ's church, and we saw what the Bible says that Christ's church is ought to look like, some characteristics or attributes that we ought to have displayed in us. And if you'll remember, that was two parts simply because I couldn't fit it into one. I barely fit it in two. Some of you said you should have just went ahead and tried four, but we covered it. So we looked at the basic attributes of Christ's church, and then we moved to the biblical assignment of Christ's church, and we were reminded what we have been commanded to do as Christ's body, and that is to make disciples. And we talked about all the aspects of disciple making, how so many times we just settle for evangelism, but there's so much more to it. We are to teach those who we are discipling after they're saved everything that the Lord has commanded. And so we were reminded of that in the biblical assignment of Christ's church. And then last week we looked at a more difficult topic, the beneficial accountability of Christ's church. This is where we learned to make ourselves vulnerable to each other, to request prayer, to request help as believers, and to give it to others in the form of exhortation and admonishment and encouragement. We learned about and talked about those things just last week. But today we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're still going to talk about the church and how this passage of Scripture is relevant to the church. but We're going to look at the brutal adversary of Christ Church, the enemy of the church. I asked some men, some men who I value their opinion about this topic. I asked them this question, and I want to get it right so they understand. There was no trick question here; it was just plain and simple. I asked these men. I said this. Please respond with your opinion, men. What is the biggest threat slash enemy? Of the church in our culture today. Now, many of you immediately you begin to think of something. What is the biggest threat and the biggest enemy to the church in our culture today? One of the guys who I sent the message to responded very quickly: apathy. And I would agree, apathy is a problem, isn't it? Uh, if you're apathetic in your walk with Christ right now, I'll go ahead and tell you this: that's a problem. Don't don't stay there. Apathy gets you nothing. Another one then quickly responded on the hills of apathy with complacency. And we know that apathy and complacency, those two definitely go hand in hand, but I would warn you against both. Don't be apathetic, but don't be complacent in your walk with Christ and in your Christian growth. The next one wanted to keep the C theme theme going. He said, compromise, right? Oh, we, we definitely we, we could. Compromise in some areas, uh, compromise in truth, compromise in our lives. Compromise could become a problem. Many men have compromised and it's cost them everything. Another one said, false assurance through false teaching leading to all of the above. The I'm good thinking. Right? This person responded, all of the above, and the reason for all of the above is false assurance through false teaching. And definitely that's a problem. In fact, Paul told Timothy it's going to be a problem, that in the, the last days, men will heap to themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And they'll actually not endure sound doctrine any longer. The next person put this, rogue and or unqualified pastors as the greatest threat or enemy to the church. Definitely, we see that that is a problem in the church. We see that all of these things are problems in the church in our culture today. One person said, Religion, and here's the thing, pure and perfect religion is not bad. But man-made ideology called religion, well, that would be bad. James says pure and perfect religion is to take care of the orphans and the widows, to show the love of Christ to others. So religion, though it could be a problem, as it was in the lives of the Pharisees because they were so caught up in just being religious, is it really the biggest threat or enemy of the church? And the last one said this, he said, the lack of worshiping Christ exclusively, allowing the culture to influence, dictate the pulpit and the message. He said that's the greatest enemy and threat to the church. Now, what I want you to see today is none of those are what Scripture says is the brutal enemy of the church. Now, does the enemy use those things? Well, of course he does. He does definitely through the course of time has changed his garments and he has used these things to distract us from the fact that he's the real enemy Why we get caught up in all these things. Because some of you would say this, and we could poll, and I get articles all the time, and some of them go like this. Uh, The ten greatest threats to the church. One of them is critical race theory. One of them is liberalism. One of them is government overreach. One of them is wokeism. One of them is biblical um, in, uh, biblical uh, illiteracy, and so on and so forth. Everybody has their idea of what the biggest threat to the church is. I want to show you what Peter says the biggest threat to the church is. In fact, he speaks of this enemy and says this enemy will devour you. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-11. through 11. And I want us to see this today because he has been very crafty and deceiving us into thinking that other things are the true enemy so that we take our mind off of who the true enemy is and we put our mind and our focus on all of these other things while all the while he is in the darkness devouring us. And so pay attention to what the Word of God says because the enemy wants to cause conflict, bring division, Discord, disharmony, discontentment, strife. He wants to destroy everything that God desires to do in your life as individuals and in the life of the church. And so I want us to pay close attention to what Peter says and in the instructions that he gives to the church here in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. We jump right in and it says this Be self controlled, sober minded. And alert. Be self controlled, sober minded, and alert. Why? He tells us why. Watches. Your enemy, apathy. No, he doesn't say that. Your enemy, complacency. He doesn't say that. Your enemy, false teaching. He doesn't say that. Are all these things cancerous to the church? You bet. But what we want to see today is who is really behind all of these things so that we are identifying the enemy correctly. He says this, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around. We know him as Satan. The Old Testament refers to him as Lucifer. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I want you to pay close attention to that. He's not roam the earth, looking for someone who he can just trip you up in life and get you off of focus, discourage you, He wants to devour you. In fact, we know that in the Gospels it says that he came to kill, steal, and destroy. He goes on to say this in verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And so I can think of no greater danger to the church than what we are seeing today. We live in a culture that has forgotten who their real enemy is. Now, if you were to go off into battle today, and you are in a battle, whether you realize it or not. If you are to go off into a battle today, and you are not familiar with who your enemy really is, you will be killed by friendly fire, and you could kill others by friendly fire. So let's make sure that we don't fall into that trap, because the church is so divided right now on so many issues that they say, these are the enemy of the church, while Satan, in a very cunning way, has taken these things, and instead of him being the enemy and the adversary of the church, he has made these things the enemy, and now we become divided on these things, and Satan wins. Why? Because a house divided will never stand. Jesus himself said that. And so as we look at these things, I want us to ask some questions. In fact, this message is really not two points. It's actually two questions. Question number one is, how does the enemy attempt to devour Question number two that we will look at today is how should the church respond? And so let's identify him. Let's see first how the enemy attempts to devour you, the church, me, as a a member of the body. How does he attempt to do this? Many of these things are going to seem quite elementary, but these are the things that he has so cunningly so cunningly caused us to forget. How does the enemy devour or attempt to devour us? Number one, write it down. Lies. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Be self-controlled and alert in verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How does he do it? He lies. In fact, John chapter 8 If you'll remember back there when we went through our study in John, we learned this in John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus having a conversation with the Pharisees there, the religious Pharisees of his day, those self-righteous Jewish leaders. He says this, If God were your father, you would love him, or you would love me, excuse me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. He tells them why they're unable. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your devil's desire, your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, watch what it says about Satan here. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. As we look at this message today in light of the warning of Peter, I want you to understand this. There is an enemy who is roaming this earth lying to you over and over and over again. It is his native tongue. It is the language that he speaks. In fact, Paul was concerned about this in the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, He says in verse 3, he says, "...but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough." He was warning the Corinthian church that he was concerned about them because he understood the enemy's deceptive tricks. We have an enemy who deceives with trickery. In fact, in that same 2nd Corinthian letter, later on in that 11th chapter, Paul says in verse 14, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He's saying some people are being led astray by by false teachers. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. What was Paul saying here? He's saying that Satan is a deceiver. He lies, and he presents himself as an angel of light. He does not present himself as a, a man in red tights with horns on his head and a pointed tail and a pitchfork in hand. That that is a caricature, that is a cartoon that Satan has used to dull your mind to the fact that he truly is a roaring lion, a vicious adversary, an enemy to the church and he seeks to devour each and every one of you through lies. He wants to devour your marriages? He wants to devour your homes? He wants to devour your children? He wants to devour this church? He is nothing to be played with and or tolerated. He is a liar, and when he speaks, he speaks lies. But oh, how many people in the church have bought into his deception, his trickery. He deceives us. He uses the old bait and switch tactic, doesn't he? He shows us something that looks good, but on the inside, it's not good at all. And many a man, many a woman have fallen into the traps of the enemy's deceit simply because they forget who their enemy really is and that he is seeking to devour you through constant lies. You want to see lies? Turn on your TV. You want to see lies? Look to Hollywood. You want to see lies? Uh, Look to all the critical thinkers in our culture who are pagans and without God. Listen to them, and you will hear lie after lie after lie after lie. Turn on the news can't trust anyone these days, can you? Why? Because he is in control of all of that. And he is a constant ever-present liar deceiving and tricking people. Not only does he use deception and trickery, he also uses dilution. He dilutes things, doesn't he? In fact, Paul was concerned about that, that people at Corinth would buy into a diluted gospel, a gospel that's really No gospel at all. In fact, he was concerned the same with the Galatians because it was Satan in their day attacking the church by deluding or twisting or trading the truth for a lie. And what does he do? He doesn't mark something lie. He packages it as the truth. And he packages it as the truth. And many times people are devoured by it before they ever realize that it was really a lie. We have so many false gospels going on out there today. How do we know the true gospel? How do we know the truth? We go to the word of God. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? That his word is truth. John 17, 17. That's where he said it. Go look at it. And so we can trust his word as truth. And what we do is we take everything that we see, knowing that there is a true enemy out there, and we measure and examine everything that we face with the truth. And if the word of God contradicts what you thought was truth, right then you know what you thought was truth was not truth. It was a lie packaged as truth by the enemy who is trying to devour you. How many people have fallen into the trap of false doctrine and false teaching simply because they bought into somebody telling them it's the truth. Don't tell me it's the truth if it's not in these 66 books. I'm not going to buy it. Because this is the truth. Everything else has the potential to be deceptive, has the potential to dilute the truth. The truth of the Word of God is the truth. What he does, the enemy, he devours you by simply twisting that, diluting that, watering it down, causing you to question solid biblical truth causing you to question the one true gospel and the one true Savior, right? Because he's telling everyone these days, all roads will eventually lead to God, right? That's universalism. It's a heresy. All roads do not lead to God. There is but one road that leads to God. And scripture is very plain and very clear on that. When Jesus said, he is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. But Satan is very crafty, and he's come along in our day. And what is he Telling people, and what are people repeating? Well, there are many ways. Oh, these people are sincere, so surely God's going to see their sincerity and it's going to count for something. Your sincerity will count for nothing. Because you can be 100% sincere, but you can also be 100% sincerely wrong. And unless you believe the truth of the word of God, you are sincerely wrong. And so be careful of that cunning enemy who likes to dilute and deceive. Be aware of him. Because many have fallen into his trap. In fact, we can go all the way back to the garden, can't we? See how this plays out in Genesis chapter 3. Oh, you remember the story. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's getting her to question what? The truth of the word of God. God told her, plain and simple, don't eat of this fruit. She's going to repeat that. Watch, she knew it. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit, uh, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now watch what Satan does. Here's the tomfoolery here. Verse four. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Is that truth? Absolutely not. That's a lie. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. You will not surely die, he said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. We know that as the fall of mankind where we steep off into total depravity. Please see how the enemy worked there. That's how he still continues to work in your life. Oh, did God really say that? Oh, God's just really just trying to take all your fun away. You should want to enjoy life. Oh, how we have heard those lies, haven't we? Are you telling me that I can't have fun with my friends? No, I'm saying you can't have fun with your friends as a believer in debauchery and immorality. Why? Because the Word of God says that we have to come out from those things. So he uses lies. You can guarantee this and Satan speaks through temptation, through luring you away, he speaks nothing but untruths. Be aware of them. They devour. Not only does he devour through lies, secondly, he devours through lust. He devours through lust. Before you put your head down, for fear that I know that you lust, we all lust after something. It is the very bend of our flesh. We hear the word lust, we often immediately go to some type of sexual immorality. It's not just that, though that is included. Lust is greed. Lust is power. Lust is fame. Lust is fortune. Lust is anything that this world, the system of Satan, has to offer you. And oh, how he offers it to us, doesn't he, American dreamers? And in the end, as you grow up, you mature in the faith. You get a little age behind you. You realize just how big the lie of the American dream is. It is a crafty tool in the hands of Satan to lure you away by your own lust for more. I, I know this. I'm not popular preaching those types of truths. But let's just see how it plays out in Scripture. When we look at lust, First John Chapter 2, John says this about lust. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And when he talks about the world, he's not talking about the globe that we're standing on. He's not talking about you going out into the mountains and love being out in the fresh air and seeing God's creation. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the system of Satan, the world. He says in verse 17, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And so when we consider what John is saying here about our lust, we have to consider some things. In, in some of your translations... When it talked about man's cravings, it used the terms, the lust of the flesh. And man has those cravings. And when I say that, of course we all know mankind. We all have those sinful cravings. They're not going away in this life. We have to be aware of them because Satan is constantly setting traps for us to fall into. Now, let me just tell you this before you go blaming him. When you sin, it's because you're lured away by your lust. But he is constantly seeking to devour you through those lusts, your cravings. In fact, James gives a clear explanation of how this works in James chapter 1 verse 13. He says, "When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he uh, nor does he tempt anyone." But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away enticed. By what? Your own evil desire. Your lust. He says you're enticed because of your lust. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James plays that out for us perfectly to warn us of the dangers of the lust of the flesh. In regard to talking about the enemy this morning, know this, that he is setting traps. He has been doing this for 4,000 years. When there were only two human beings on this planet, he knew how and he was cunning enough and crafty enough to make them fall. Don't think that you're above it. Don't think that you somehow have arrived. He's been doing it a lot longer now. He's experienced in what he does. So when we look at this, we need to be aware of our lust. Man's cravings, our our inward evil desire. And what is that inward evil desire? I don't know what it is for you. You don't know what it is for me. And that's okay. What we do know is for all of us, when we talk about lust and we talk about that inward evil desire, it is our attempt to fulfill the flesh that we have, our human nature, with what it craves most, and that is sin. It's sin. Why? Because our flesh enjoys sin. I don't think for a second that your flesh doesn't enjoy sin. That's why you always find yourself falling into it. That's why it's a struggle. Man doesn't have to be taught how to crave sin. It's in us. I think back, Augustine had his moment in in his life where he stole pears. And the funny thing about Augustine's story is he stole pears. And later on in his Christian life, when he grew in the faith, he realized how ridiculous it was that he stole pears because he didn't even like pears. But the cravings of his sinful nature caused him to do what? Sin. I think of Augustine and I think of me because I had my pear moment as a young man uh, here in New Caney. And and I'm thankful that the statute of limitations is up on this crime. There was a man in, in, in our neighborhood, Mr. Coleman. Mr. Coleman had a watermelon patch. And we used to go in the summertime, the hot summertime, just being sinful little boys and steal his watermelons and eat them in 100-degree weather. Now, no one likes 100-degree watermelon, right? No one. We would steal them, bust them on the ground, and eat them hot. Go home with a severe stomachache because we really didn't care if they were ripe or not because we just stole that thing and ran through the woods and we were going to eat it. I don't say that to glorify my sin. I say that to show you what our flesh is does. I'm thankful that that sin's under the blood just like all of my sin. But that's what our flesh does. It craves sin and Satan knows this. He wants to devour you by your lust. Maybe your lust is not watermelon. Maybe your lust is from your computer screen. Maybe your lust is in that break room with that relationship that you know you shouldn't have. Maybe your lust is for power and money and success and fame and that 401k account that you've been saving so diligently for what you don't really know because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. He comes at us. He attacks us because he knows what we crave. You see the lust of the flesh, but we also see this when we talk about lust, not just man's cravings, man's covetousness, the lust of the eyes. That's what John was talking about, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Isn't that what got Eve in trouble? She saw it. It looked good. She tasted it. It tastes good. Lust of the eyes. What am I talking about? Man's covetousness. Not only are we talking about man's cravings, the lust of his flesh, Talk about man's covetousness and the lust of his eyes. Now, if we were to poll everyone in this room, all of you have looked at something that someone else had been blessed with, and you were jealous, and you wished you had it, and you became discontent with the things that you had because you wanted what the other person had. Let me tell you what the Word of God calls that. It not changed. It's covetousness. In fact, it's in the Ten Commandments. Uh, don't, don't Don't covet. Don't covet another man's wife. Don't covet covet another man's maidservant. Don't covet covet another man's donkey or anything that he has. That includes bass boats, deer leases, big four-wheel drive trucks, ladies, furniture, pictures from Hobby Lobby, trips to Hobby Lobby. We laugh. But there is a brutal enemy, and he destroys your contentment with God and God alone through these things. Please see them for what they are. Be aware of that. How does this enemy devour? Lust. Man's cravings, man's covetousness. Grass always looks greener on the other side when you're looking through the eyes of lust. Doesn't it? Oh, we can apply that to every category of lust that we struggle with in this room. Apply it to whatever it is in your life. But we know this, it's a trap. Man's covetousness, the lust of his eyes... Is a trap. He sets them for us. You think he doesn't set them for us? You think it was by chance that Bathsheba was on that rooftop bathing where David could see her? But you don't think that there were forces of darkness arranging that adulterous, murderous relationship? A man after God's own heart, you didn't think that this was coincidence, did you? No, perhaps there really is a real enemy of the people of God who seeks to devour them in such ways. All David had to do was take that glance a little bit longer than the last time. And what did he do? Bring her to me. And he took someone who was not his wife, and he lay with her, and then he had her husband murdered. You see what happens? All because the enemy set a trap because of the fact that man has sinful cravings. The enemy was successful. David had wives. David had riches, David had a kingdom, but the lust of the eyes got him. Lust of the eyes got him. You don't think that's real? Uh, Let's have a conversation with another Old Testament character, if we could. How about Achan in the battle of Ai that we see in Joshua chapter 7? When Achan and all the people of Israel were told, don't, don't take the spoils of war for yourself. We're going to consecrate these things and dedicate these things to the Lord. But he saw something with his eye. That's said, man, that would look good on my shelf at home. Let it belong to you, Achan. I know, but you know, and I'm sure he tried to justify it, just as we all do. I fought in this battle. I killed many, many men in this battle. I deserve something. Isn't that how we try to justify our flesh? What did he do? He took those things that he wanted and he hid them in his tent. Then all of Israel paid the price. You see how he devours? He devours not only the individual, but he devours the whole. Please pay attention to that, church. He devours them through the lust of their eyes, man's sinful desire for things that he sees from his flesh. Man's covetousness, man's cravings. Lust is revealed in both of those. The fact that we struggle with that. But what about the next one, what John says in John chapter 2, he mentions the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Man's control, his desire to control. Now, if I were to ask you in this room, how many of you struggle with control? Some of you would admit it because yours is obvious, others wouldn't. The ones who didn't are liars. Don't we all want to be in control of our own destiny? Uh, Haven't we been taught in this country that's what we're supposed to do? You can be whatever it is that you set your mind to be. Who cares about the providence of God and His desire and His will for your life? You do what you want to do. Oh, doesn't man really crave control? I Go back to the garden with me there in Genesis chapter 3 again as we look at what happens. Eve begins to succumb because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And then The enemy puts the icing on the cake. You'll be like God if you eat this. Oh, isn't that man's desire to control his own destiny and to be like God? Man's sinful desire is to be in control. This is the main reason that many people oppose God's sovereign grace and salvation because they want to be in control of it. They want to be in control of everything. They want to call the shots. They want to be that shot caller. They want to be somebody who's large and in charge. They want to be the boss. Why? It comes from our internal lust for power and control. Because we all have it. You don't believe me? Think of your marriage relationship right now. It's a constant battle, isn't it? If you're not applying the scriptures to your marriage, your wife's trying to wear the pants you're fighting them for, fighting her for them. Instead of just doing what the Word of God says, husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, wives submit to your husbands in everything. Instead of applying those truths and both of you looking to Christ at the same time so that your marriage is a place of of harmony and unity, what do you do? You're constantly fighting for control, right? Uh, You've been there, unfortunately, right? All of us who are married have been there at some point in time. Thankfully in my life, it was in my younger years of marriage when I was still learning how to do this thing. Thankful for the Word of God that sheds wisdom on how to do it. It's like, I don't know how to be married. <laughs> Absolutely not. But I go to the Word of God and He teaches me truth. But here's the thing how many of us have spent those nights where one person's faced one way and the other person's faced the other way? Two Christians laying in the same bed, not unified in Christ. You know what I learned a long time ago? Jesus meant what He said Don't let the sun set on your anger. Turn around. Be a leader in your home and say, babe, we got to talk. We are not going to sleep until this is resolved. We will be one in Christ. Until, Until then, we are not going to rest. Let's talk about this. Let's pray about it. And let's see who the real enemy is who's causing division in our home. It's not you, babe, and it's not me. It's him. That's why it's so important that we as a church see our brutal enemy. You know what he wants to do? He wants to destroy every single marriage in this room. Now, guess what? Be successful 50% of the time. Don't be that 50%. Be that person who says, you know what? I'm not going to fight my husband. I'm not going to fight my wife for control. We are going to submit to God and what His Word says, and we are going to lead our family and guide our family the way that the Word of God says to do it. Anything else is your pride, pride of life, your desire to control. Be careful. How does the enemy devour? Lust. Lust. Man's cravings, man's covetousness, man's control. He puts those temptations out there so that we succumb to those temptations, so that we fall. He lies to us, and then he preys on our lust. It's pretty easy to do, isn't it? How many of you deer hunters are in the room? You're getting all fired up. It's Labor Day. You know it's getting close. You know at some point in time, a deer is going to crave corn. So what do you do? You put it out for them. You crave sin in your flesh, and he's going to put it out there for you. Pay attention to that so that you don't fall, so that you are not devoured by this roaring lion who is roaming the earth seeking to devour you. The third thing that we will look at in our question that we, are, we have asked, how does the enemy attempt to devour? The third thing is this. These are going to seem different, the next two. We've seen lies. We've seen lust. Watch this, license. You say, license, what in the world are you talking about? Pay close attention to this. I'm talking about a theological term known as antinomianism. We, we, we call it hyper-grace. It is that group of people who they say, I have grace, therefore I can live any way that I want and do whatever I please, and in the end I'm forgiven and I have heaven and everything's great. Can I let you know this today because I care about your soul? Antinomianism is heresy. What it's going to do is it's going to devour you, that person who takes the grace of God and just does whatever in the world you feel like doing with it in that Moment. What a sad thing it is that in our day we see a huge resurgence of this antinomian ideology in our church culture, right? Our all inclusive, except everyone, liberal thinking that has infiltrated the church. And this is Satan using the old trick of license to try and attempt to trick the church again. It is where we take grace and we use it as a license to sin. Way back in the New Testament, Jude wrote a letter to the church. I, I know I referenced this last week, but I referenced it for a different reason. I'm going to reference it again this week for another reason in the context of what we're looking at. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write. And urge you to contend for the faith. He said, "I want to write about Jesus, but and, and all the glorious riches of salvation, but I can't because I have to write and contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints." And he warns them: "For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Who do these men work for? Satan. Know that they are agents of darkness. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ." our only sovereign and Lord. They deny the sovereign lordship of Christ and they then abuse grace by using it as a license to sin. Which brings us to the first category of those who Satan tempts with license. Those are, this is the group that abuses grace. Those who abuse grace. What does the abuse of grace look like? Romans chapter 6, Paul covers this for us in verse 15. He says, what then, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. A better translation says, God forbid. May it not be so. Shall we sin just because we have grace? Church, no. The answer is always and emphatically no. You should never abuse the grace that you have been given in Christ. That grace came at the highest price. When you abuse grace, you trample over the blood of the Son of God. You look to the cross of Jesus Christ and say that it's not an important event. You look to the the sacrifice of Christ and say that it doesn't matter. Oh, please understand the depths of what we're looking at here. When that brutal adversary, Satan, the enemy, tricks church people into thinking that grace is an excuse to do whatever in the world that you want to do. Right? You know the attitude. Forgive me, Lord, for what I'm about to do. You've already heaped condemnation upon yourself. You've already made your own self aware that you know what you are about to do is sin. Thank the Holy Spirit that he has made you aware and repent of it before it ever takes place and trust in God to deliver you from that temptation. Why? Because Satan is using it to devour you, cause the fall to bring you down. This is serious t- stuff, church. Wake up and hear it. We see license in the form of the abuse of grace where we know what God's word says and do it. In, we, we do what we want anyways. Be careful. Be careful with your do it anyway mentality. Be careful with your how much can I get away with and still be a Christian mentality. Isn't that what we see in our world? People go to the Bible and say, how much can I actually do and it still not be sin? That should never be the heart of the Christian. The heart of the Christian said, Lord, let me abstain from even the very appearance of evil. Let me not have one speck of dust on this white robe that you died for me to wear. That should be the heart of the true believer. But the antinomian, the one who falls to license under following the lies of Satan, he abuses grace. Not only does he abuse grace, he misuses grace. What do I mean by misusing grace? 1 Peter chapter 2 Peter says this, verse 16, he says, live as free men. He's talking about freedom from the law. You're not bound by a set of rules. He says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Servants of God will understand that the word of God says, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. True servants of God will seek to live obedient and holy lives unto God out of appreciation for what he did by sending his son to the cross to die for you you will live your life in obedience to him you won't be misusing grace oh, how many times do you hear it oh I'm doing that because I have freedom in Christ I'm so tired of all the people with freedom in Christ they're getting liquored up all the time because of their freedom in Christ you're abusing your freedom in Christ drunkenness is a sin it always has been a sin it always will be a sin Stop playing with it. You're misusing God's grace. And it's dangerous. You say, Well, I don't get drunk. Let's look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says. Be careful, however, that the, the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Oh, Mister, you don't get drunk. Right? Mr. or Mrs. Jesus turned the water into wine for your justification. <laughs> Think about the other brothers and sisters in Christ before you misuse grace. Think about that brother or sister because they're here in this room. It's not my testimony to give. It's theirs. Who were saved out of addiction, who who were saved out of alcoholism or drug abuse. They're here in this room and you say this, because of my Christian freedom, I can sit down at Gringo's and have one of them bowls that you all so quickly cover up when I walk into the restaurant that you're not worried about, that aren't sin. What about the brother who sees you who was saved out of alcoholism and he sees you partaking of that fishbowl drink that you're just celebrating the weekend? He doesn't know how to take a sip of that. It's been his problem his whole life. And what you do is you cause him to stumble that weaker brother right back into what Christ saved him. Out of? Do we not care about our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to abstain from things that could lead them down the wrong path instead of us abusing them all in the name of Christian freedom? Stop. I use alcohol, but there's so many examples out there, isn't there? So all you people who choose to drink, we know who you are. You blast it on your social media and hurt your testimony every day. For all of you. Listen, I understand it's not the only problem in the world. I've got mine too, and you know what I wish? I wish if you saw me and my problem, you would help me with it because we learned about accountability last week. Oh, help me. Hold my feet to the fire. Kirk, you claim one thing, but you're living opposite of that. Don't you think that's a problem? Well, yeah, it is a problem. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. People who love each other, people who are truly family, that's what they do. License. Many people use grace as a license to sin, and Satan devours people by that. He eats you up. He kills your testimony to others constantly. Be aware of that. So we see license as a threat to the church because the enemy devours people who exercise license. Not only license, continuing to talk about religious things or things that apply to the church, there's another L, and that's legalism. The enemy devours the church and attempts to devour the church through legalism. What is legalism? That's where we recreate a set of rules that we have to check all the boxes. And if we don't check all the boxes, well, God's not pleased with us and we're not approved by God any longer. It's called works-based salvation. It is where a person teaches other people That for you to be accepted by God is based on your performance. Now, many of you, you grew up like I did, right? You played football on Friday nights, and it was all about performance. You loved to hear, man, what a good game, but you sure hated to hear, man, we stunk it up. Works-based legalism is performance-based. That's where you have to do X, Y, and Z to be approved by God. We know that that's not biblical. Many people have lost sight of that, and that's why it is so crafty for Satan to use it, to put it in our hands to devour the church, the individuals that make up the church. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 16, he says, I know that a man is not justified by observing the law, a set of rules, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. How many people will be justified by keeping a set of rules? Zero. None. In fact, when we even talk about the Ten Commandments, what the Ten Commandments were, were to show us how holy God is and how sinful we are, so that we would turn to a holy God, and so that we would bow down and accept His righteous sacrifice of His Son, so that we could be forgiven and we could be cleansed of our sin. Paul goes on to say this later on in Galatians, verse 21. I'll skip there just for the sake of time. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Well, Satan wants the church to return to legalism. Why? Because it diminishes the sacrifice of Christ. If we all return to the law, Christ died for nothing. You see how he uses legalism? He's been using it even since the early church. We know that Paul wrote to the Galatians because they were falling back into it at the hand of Judaizers who were planted there by Satan himself. Legalism is a burden that we cannot carry. It is a yoke that is unbearable. In fact, Acts chapter 15 speaks of legalism as being a yoke. Verse 10, it says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Now, what was that? It was a Jewish man who had been saved, and what had happened is Gentiles had come into the church. Christ came first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Gentiles were included. These Jewish believers who are now have now come to Christ, they don't really know what to do with the Gentiles because the Gentiles, they don't have any law set up for themselves in the form of the law that the Jews had, and they're all discussing, what should we tell them that they need to do? And someone with a little wisdom here came to the conclusion, we don't need to put a yoke on them because even the yoke that was put on us, the 613 commands of the law that we couldn't carry, we couldn't carry it. What makes us think that they're going to carry it? They're not. And what did they come to the conclusion of? We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not justified by a set of rules. They began to drift away from that legalistic thinking. Galatians 5 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Verse 1, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What what is he saying? Well, for the Jew, he's saying don't revert back to the law. For the Gentile, he's saying this to us. Listen, don't create law for yourself. You didn't get good points with God today because you came to church and you checked off that box. When you read your Bible last night or you prayed and you checked off those boxes, it, it didn't count for points toward God in your relationship to him. The only thing that makes you have a right relationship with God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to all who by faith trust in his sacrifice as the atoning work that covers your sin. That's it. Not justified any other way. Stop trying to be justified by what you do. Why? Why is that important? You're always going to fall short. Because everything that Kirk Hall does has a problem. You know what that problem is? Kirk Hall. Kirk Hall. Kirk Hall is flawed. Kirk Hall is Erred, her call is sinful. And apart from Christ, I can do nothing, just as He to- told me in John chapter fifteen. So we must be aware that the enemy uses legalism to devour those in the church. It's for that reason that Jesus said this: "Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest." Why, why was that music to the ears of those new Jewish believers? Because their whole lives they had been under the burden of trying to do enough to somehow please God, always falling short. Have you ever found yourself in that condition? How many of you have ever found yourself in those legalistic circles where you felt like all you did was never enough? You know why? It was never enough. Nothing that you could do would ever compare to what Christ did at the cross. Rest in that. Rest in that alone, not your own righteousness. Why? Because your righteousness is that of filthy rags. It is worthless in God's economy. But Satan loves to come into the churches and trip people up. I'm not talking about righteous living when I talk about legalism. I'm talking about you attempting to be justified by your service and works and good deeds even if there are service and works and good deeds unto God. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Nothing else will justify us before a holy God. And so as we look at this, see the danger that legalism presents. It's discouraging. How many a man, how many a woman in a church service this morning is just discouraged because somebody is browbeating them to death, Right? He's telling that woman who showed up to his church service wearing pants instead of a dress that she's somehow going to go to hell for wearing pants. You know how I know that a person won't go to hell for wearing pants? Because a person won't go to heaven for wearing a dress. That's legalistic ideology. It's backward thinking. It's not biblical at all. It's not Christian at all. But Satan is very, very crafty in bringing it into the church, causing division, causing discouragement, and even causing defeat. So that we understand it clearly, let's see what Paul says it was all intended for. That's what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law... We become conscious of sin. What is the law for? It is so we can become conscious of sin. Why is it important that we become conscious of sin? Because in our consciousness of sin, then we will realize that we fall short of God's standard and we are in need of righteousness. And we can't produce it. And then we'll read this. But now a righteousness, verse 21, from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. Meaning there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see how Satan uses legalism to take your eyes off Christ, put your eyes on you, and to defeat you with you? No, our victory is in Christ Jesus. Our redemption is in Christ Jesus. Our justification is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, verse 25, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. I can't brag on the good I've done. I've done no good. All I've done is sin, and I have a gracious, merciful Heavenly Father who rescues me from me. He paid the ultimate price, Through the blood and the life of his only begotten Son, thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy in Christ, that I am justified by what he did, not by what I did, because what he did was perfect. What I do is always imperfect. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of, of observing the law. No, but on that of faith. We can't boast about what we do, because what we do is a gift from God, according to Ephesians. It's by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. We know this, that Ephesians tells us, we talk about being saved, you're saved by grace and not of works. It is the gift of God so that no man can what? Boast. I've got nothing to boast in. I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ. Both grace and faith, a gift. God gave me the faith to believe. He graced me with that. And that belief is what saves me. And all glory goes to him. Satan doesn't like that. Why? Because if you'll go back and through Isaiah's 14th chapter and you'll see Well, we have indication of the fall of Satan, Lucifer, there. What was his desire? To be like God, to ascend God's throne, to receive God's glory. What better way is it to receive God's glory than to trick a bunch of people in the so-called church into thinking that they can follow a set of rules only to discourage them, only to dismantle them, only to defeat them, and ultimately to devour them by their legalistic thinking. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, said this, Those who lapse from the gospel to the law are no better off than those who lapse from grace to idolatry. a statement. Satan loves to devour people by trapping them, by trapping them in in an attempt to justify themselves, through keeping a set of rules, through keeping the law, all the while forgetting about the grace of God that was provided for them at the cross of Jesus Christ. Church, may we never forget. May we never forget. We're not bound by a set of rules. We've been set free by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, free to live a life of imputed righteousness that then comes out of our life as imparted righteousness to bring glory to God on this earth. Don't forget that. We sideswiped by Satan and devoured. So I told you we were asking two questions today. I know what you're thinking. When are we going to get to the second question? The first one was, how does the enemy attempt to devour? The second one was, how should the church respond? We'll make this quick. The amazing thing is Peter gives us exactly how the church should respond. I'm thankful that Peter didn't say, be sober, be vigilant, be alert. Because the enemy, the devil, roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking he, whom he may devour peace and good luck to you. I'm thankful he didn't do that. No, what he does is he tells us, How we should respond. First thing that he says is this in verse 9, the first part. He says this, resist him. Resist him. Standing firm. Resist Satan, standing firm in the faith. Uh, Let's break this down before we go any further so that you understand exactly what he's saying. The Greek term here for resist him, you know what it means? To stand against and to fight. Isn't it a shame that in the modern church age, in the modern church culture, we have all but erased the warrior nature of the young people in our churches, right? We, we tell little boys, hey, hey, little boy, don't pick up that stick and make it into a sword. Why not? Nobody taught him to make that into a sword. There's a warrior instinct in him that says a boy is supposed to do a little fighting. I remember one time here at Key Life Fellowship, we had some young men, they were establishing pecking order. Every creature under the sun does. You remember junior high school, right? The cute girl. What did all the boys want to do to get the cute girl? They wanted to fight for her. Nobody had to teach us to do that, right? Here's the thing. I, I remember these two little boys out in the churchyard fighting. lady brings them to me, the two boys. One of them, he shook up pretty bad. There's no blood, but he's got a couple red spots, a little bit of a, little bit of a pop not developing. And she said, Pastor, I found these two boys fighting out in the playgrounds. Looked at them, I said, which one of y'all won? One said, me. I said, good job. Looked at the other one who lost, said, you need to tighten up, son. I walked off. I didn't know what you wanted me to do, right? (laughs) I'm not gonna take the warrior instinct out of these guys. Now, here's the thing, it's their mom and dad's job to say this, look, don't start fights, don't be a bully. All those things that we know are right. But you parents who are telling your kids that someone punches you in the face, just lay down in the fetal position and take it. Call for help. Stop doing that. Taking the warrior instant. You remember the church used to sing songs, Onward, Christian Soldier, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. We understood we were in a battle against an enemy who was trying to devour us. Wake up. Wake up. Teach your young men, teach your young women. You teenage girls know this. When that boy is trying to talk you into things, that is the enemy trying to devour you. Stand firm, fight. And if you don't have a dad to call, call me. Call me. You say, well, preacher, now you're meddling in people's business. No, I love you. I don't want to watch you get devoured by the enemy. He's waging war against us. Peter says to the church, stand and fight. This is the good fight of faith that Paul speaks about, Most, both in First and 2 Timothy. It's the one that he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He was constantly fighting with the enemy in various forms. Paul knew that his enemy was not shipwreck and persecution. He knew that his enemy was Satan. Satan was using those things to try to get him to get his eyes and his mind off of Christ. He continued to fight tooth and nail in the good fight. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul teaches it like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take your stand. There it is again. Take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if it comes, when it comes, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, it goes on in the next verse, stand firm then. Stand we got Christians who are afraid to stand and fight when the Word of God clearly says, there is an enemy who is trying to devour you. Resist him. And then he goes on after that and he says, standing firm in the faith. Where do we stand? We don't fade on some, uh, stand on some wavering foundation. We stand on the faith. Our sure, strong, steadfast hope in Christ and in Christ alone. We stand there, and the true gospel, true saving faith, the truth of the word of God, the truth about faith and repentance and obedience, that's where we stand against all of these schemes of the devil. He comes, and he comes to lie to you, to steal, kill, and destroy, to take your lives, to take your marriages, to take your children, to destroy even this body of believers. Pay attention to that. No. We're called to resist the enemy and stand firm. And then he goes on to say this in verse 9, there in the third part. He says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Look at the concern there that Peter has for the church. He reminds them of this, you're not by yourself. You're not facing the attacks of the enemy all by yourself. All you people who have been here today in this message, and you were convicted because you know the enemy is having his way with you or potentially could have his way with you, and you're sitting here, I hope no one ever finds out that the enemy attacks me. He attacks us all. In fact, that's what he's telling the church here. The church throughout the world, the invisible church, they all face the brutal attacks of our adversary, the devil. Pay attention to that. He desires to devour you. We should respond by encouraging one another in the family of Christ. Lift each other up in prayer. To admit our struggles. Did you know that the Bible says confess your sins to one another? To say, hey, brother, I'm struggling with this. Will you pray for me? Because Satan's trying to devour me, and I need to stand in the word and the power of God. Will you pray for me? Make yourself vulnerable. Oh, but what if they see weakness in me? Then they see who you truly are. And then when they see you as strong, they will know that it's not you. They will know it is Christ, and they will give him the glory that is due. Remember, you're not alone. As the enemy tempts. He's not tempting you by yourself. Well, we can go back to Matthew chapter 4, and we can see this. The enemy tempted Christ, and Christ prevailed. In fact, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews four fifteen. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. What encouragement that is! Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, remained sinless. The same Holy Spirit that descended upon Christ at his baptism lives in each of you if you are truly in Christ. He promises us this. And with every temptation, God will provide a way out so that you can stand up against that temptation. But if you go around playing like you're not tempted with anything and that the enemy's not throwing anything in your face, you're already defeated. It's going to get you before you know it. Those of you who know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying, don't you? Remember, you're not alone. What encouragement comes from that? And then he says this in verse 10. Verse 10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He reminds the church, trust in the Lord. Keep on trusting. I know that you are in a brutal fight with a brutal adversary. I know that he is coming at all of you from every angle and every way with false teaching, with immorality, with paganism, with all sorts of secular ideology. I know that he's coming at you. But don't trust in what you see, trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. What hope we have when we trust in the Lord? We trust in his grace. Look what he says there in in verse 10. He reminds us of his grace and the God of all grace. You need grace in your fight? You need grace in your fight? You know what he tells the believer? You can boldly, confidently come before his throne of grace in your time of need. And there you will find mercy in grace. Oh, when the onslaught of the enemy who you have pretended for so long doesn't exist, or is just some caricature or cartoon, when the onslaught of the enemy becomes real to you, rest in Christ. Trust in Him. Wait for His strength. Go before His throne. And admit, Father, I'm struggling. And the struggle is real. And I'm in need of your grace. He is the God of all grace and He will supply the grace that you need. Aren't you thankful for that this morning, church? But also His timing. He says, in just a little while. I love that He says a little while. He's not going to leave us there. He says, in just a a little while. In my perfect timing, I'm going to bring restoration. Trust in that. His restoration in his timing. He will restore you. It makes me think of the psalmist in the 23rd Psalm when he wrote these words in verse 3. He, talking about the Lord, restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, how many of us who have walked with Christ long enough to know those seasons where the the enemy seems to attack us at every turn brutally. How it does weary you and how it does zap your strength. But oh, how we know we serve a God who restores our soul and He guides us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake so that He will receive glory and honor. It's in those moments we hold on The truths of Scripture, Isaiah 40, verse 31, one you know and are familiar with, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Well, why would we ever lose our strength? You're in a battle. If you're fighting, you're going to become tired. Trust in the Lord then. He says those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength and they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Restoration is coming. Trust in that. How should the church respond? Resist the enemy. Stand firm in the faith. Remember that you're not alone. Trust in the Lord. And I'll make this last one quick. Verse 11, though it's a big deal. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What a reminder from Peter there of worship. In the middle of his instructions to the church to be on guard against the roaring lion, Satan, who's roaming the earth seeking to devour you. He stops and gives a doxology right there of worship and adoration to the Lord, reminding us of this. When we are in the middle of the fight, let us lift our eyes and our hands to the hills. Let us lift ourselves to Christ, the maker of heaven and earth. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord. Worship him in the midst of the battle. Be reminded that the victory has already been won. Where do we experience that? We don't experience that when we're not in the battle. We experience that in the bottom of the trenches, in the bottom of the foxhole. We bow our knees and we bow our head to the ground. And we honor God above all things. We submit to him. Isn't that what James says in James chapter 4, verse 7? He says, submit yourselves then to God. You want the devil to leave you alone? Watch what he says. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Everybody wants the devil to flee. They don't want to submit to God. Pay attention to those words. Submit yourselves to God. Where does that begin? In a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Surrender to Him today. Be saved, be washed, be cleansed. Be invited into the family of God, adopted forever. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Well. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Oh, you are weary. You are battle-torn. Satan is attempting to devour you at every turn. Bow your head in submission to the Lord, and your heart in submission to the Lord, and be lifted up as you humble yourselves before him today. Well, I've preached this message to you today because I am so afraid that in our time we are unaware any longer of the true enemy of the church, the true enemy of the church is Satan himself, who's masquerading as an angel of light, bringing all sorts of trouble upon this earth to God's people. We must stand resisting him, fighting with everything that we have, all the strength that the Lord has given us, or we will be devoured. Because I care about each and every one of you, I don't want you to be devoured. I don't want you teenagers to grow up and go off to college and be devoured by the world. So many are. I don't want you families to suffer through a divorce and a broken home and to be devoured by the enemy and so many are. So I put my head out today on the chopping block at the risk of being hated by all to tell you the truth. There is an enemy. And he is roaming this earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Find refuge in the Lord this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, for the challenges from your word, the forgotten truths that we bypass so often in our relevant ideology of today. God, may we see the battle that we're in. May we rise up as warriors for our King, standing firm against your enemy and the enemy of your people. May you receive glory and honor for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you
0: for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.